Hello and welcome back to Devonshire's Litigation and Dispute Resolution podcast. My name is Alicia and I'm your host for this series. We will bring you a snapshot of what we do here at Devonshire's and today I'm joined again by Matthew and Pauline. Hi. So today we're talking about dealing with hostile social media. Defamation or even negative press is of course something that both businesses and individuals have had to deal with for a while. However, the internet and social media have really amplified this. So to start with, what constitutes defamation? So when we're talking about defamation, uh, we're, we're speaking about two different things really that come under that same heading and that's libel and slander. And there's a slight difference between the two of them. Libel is written. Uh, slander is oral statements. Uh, for our purposes today, whether they are sort of a lasting or not lasting um, form of defamation, they are one and the same defamation. Um, and that the test which has been used to establish whether a statement is defamatory has changed over time. So today we would say that the test is broadly whether a statement would cause one to think less of the person or the company to whom it refers. And I think it's worth pointing out at this junction as well that there is no investigation of the intention of an individual to cause damage. It is a question not of what the person intended to do, but whether the statement was in fact defamatory. And typical cases uh, in, in involve, I mean, a, a corporate entity or a person of repute or, or indeed a celebrity. And of course, those receive the biggest press. Defamation can be a, a cause for a number of corporate entities, particularly our housing clients and to speak perhaps a little bit more about what sort of um, defamatory statements are made we find that you know they typically are allegations of misconduct of some form but also there can be allegations regarding what people's beliefs are or, or their private actions or statements and um, they can essentially bring into the public realm something which is negative about a person or a company and not known otherwise and these are the sort of circumstances where, where, where we, we um, come in and assist with, with allegations of, of defamation. And what are the requirements to be able to pursue a claim for defamation? Well, firstly, of course, you have to look at whether that test is satisfied, whether the statement does actually, um, when you look at it in a natural and ordinary way, when you apply a natural and ordinary test to the, each individual word and, and the context of the, of the statement itself, whether it would cause a person to think less of the company uh, or person that the, the statement refers to. But there has been you know, changes in recent years which have brought in what's called a serious harm test. Um, and that is that you have to show that there, there has to be a, a, a has been caused or is likely to cause serious harm to reputation as a result of the, the statement in question. Um, for in the case of companies, if you want to establish that you are passing that serious harm test, you have to establish that there's been a serious financial loss. So how can you actually prove serious harm? Is that something that is difficult, especially when it comes to proving potential serious harm? It, it certainly is very difficult uh, to, to prove. And it is always a hurdle that should be considered at the outset. It's very fact specific. And always what, what we, would, we would do at the outset of any potential uh, defamation action is, is collect as much information as possible about both the statement, the spread of the statement, who's actually uh, seen the statement, how it is affecting ordinarily a, a business's financial position. You can look at ways of, of identifying potential witnesses who might be able to speak to these issues. Um, but often you need, to, you need to try and do some, some accounting to, to understand how it has been affected 
um, or how it will be affected in due course. And, and that is a, an extremely difficult exercise. Now, one of the areas which we are commonly involved in is, is, is trying to identify losses that have been sustained as a result of a, a, a small and relatively insignificant comment that might be made about a client. And sometimes clients are very concerned that these statements have had a big impact and, and it is all about getting the right witness evidence, using the, the best accountants that we can, we can get to forensically and that analyze uh, the position and to, to look forward as to how the position might be affected um, over the course of a period of time. And I would just at this point just comment as well that invariably we find um, defamatory statements are not one-off statements. They are statements as part of a course of conduct that can be aimed at our clients. And in those circumstances, the possibility of demonstrating that there has been serious harm um, by an ongoing set of comments or conduct against a client, um, it can make it easier to establish there has been a loss because you have that ongoing repeated representations, which are, are false. And you mentioned earlier that uh, often what happens is the client will come to us because a statement's been posted online, for example. And the internet, and in particular social media, really is designed to allow people to easily share their thoughts and experiences. So can you rely on freedom of speech as a defence? And, and if not, what are the other defences you can use? Well, the fact that there are rights of freedom of speech is not a, a sufficient defence in itself. You cannot go to court and say, I have a, I have a right of freedom of speech and, and, and I can say whatever I want to say. Of course, there's limits on that right. Um, and, and the best way to look at, at the, the various defences is, is to start with the, the, the complete defences. And let's start with the obvious one, of course, which is limitation. I think it's worth pointing this out. That in most cases, people think they have six years um, in order to bring a claim. That's, that's typical of contractual claims, absolutely. Where you are dealing with defamation, you only have a one-year period, and that's quite strict. So that if you are over a year, you know there is going to be a, a real difficulty in bringing a, in bringing a claim, and the defence would be that it's out of time. There's the possibility as well that um, a, a defence of uh, possible innocent dissemination um, can can be used, and this is where you have a third party who's not the author of the statement if they can establish that they took reasonable care in, in, in republishing the material, um, and that there's no reason to believe that that person caused or contributed to the defamatory statement. There are certain circumstances in which there, there are um, other full defences of consent, where someone has consented to a statement being made or an apology has been accepted. There are then um, specific defences relating to uh, defamation. First of those is, is, is truth. Someone can argue that the statement that has been made is actually true. Um, and when this is true, they mean substantially true. Perhaps an example of this might be that if it is reported, um, somebody at a Christmas party gets a bit drunk and is, is violent. If that is reported, the uh, defence may be um, truth. That person was drunk and violent. But if it is established as a matter of truth that that person was drunk but not violent, the question will then be, well, can you use the defence of truth? You can if the, if the truth element was actually the part that caused the damage. Now, it may be said by the court that the fact that someone was allegedly drunk but was not actually drunk does not cause serious damage to them, but the fact that they have been violent does. Um, and then the defence of truth works. There's also the other substantial defence of honest opinion. 
but someone cannot say that it is my honest opinion that he was both drunken and, and disorderly and violent if that the basis of that opinion is not made clear in the statement. Uh, then we come to, to, to another a number of other defences which, which do arise from time to time, one of which perhaps most relevant to a number of our clients is public interest. And, and this is to argue that I was entitled to make the statement because um, I believed it was in the public interest. Uh, this requires a reasonable belief um, by the person making the statement. And it's a case really here where the court will look at balancing that freedom of expression right. Um, the court will look at the level of um, newsworthiness as such. Now, newsworthiness in itself is too wide. You can't rely purely on newsworthiness to say it's in the public interest. In the, these, these are matters that um, the court will look at whether someone has a, 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 a purely personal interest and it's not, it is not something that the public would, would genuinely be interested in. So again, it's very, very case specific. And finally, the more serious an allegation is, uh, the more compelling the need will be to satisfy that, that public interest test. So let's say a client has come to us with a claim for defamation. We've successfully proved either serious harm to reputation or a serious financial loss, and none of those defences apply. What are some of the remedies available for the client? Well, there's a number of remedies available, and, and I think the, the one that people tend to focus on, focus on, of course, is damages. But it's important to recognise that damages are not necessarily going to um, be sufficient. They are not, in, in defamation cases, always the highest. Um, it's going to depend on what the funding position of the, uh, the, the defendant is. In the right case, um, you can get an exemplary damages award. And that takes account of the fact that a defendant may have deliberately chosen to, to essentially maliciously uh, defame you. But often, certainly our clients are very interested in injunctive remedies or, or ways by which we can prevent future defamation or indeed to, to have published uh, retractions um, or statements were defamatory and they are being removed. Um, you can get orders to remove statements or to cease distribution of statements, uh, publications. Um, and there can also be an order for the publication of a summary of the judgment. That is, in my view, the approach that you should take to, to uh, defamation issues. Um, you, you're not there to, to recover all your losses through, through recovery of, um, of getting damages. Um, you are to prevent any further losses, recover what you can. So just going back to when statements are posted on the internet, the internet is obviously a vast space where things get tweeted, posted, shared all the time. How can you actually be aware or monitor when something has been posted about you or your organisation? Usually it would be through dedicated tools or through um, staff members monitoring or a combination of both. In terms of tools, you can set up, for example, a Google alert with certain keywords where you'll receive a notification if um, something appears on Google with that keyword, for example, the name of your organisation. It takes about two seconds to set up and it's free, so I definitely recommend that that is done in any event. It's not necessarily always the most reliable, but there are other paying tools out there, mention tracking tools, that can provide this service. And then let's say you do come across something potentially defamatory online, what would the next steps be? I would say first step would be to investigate what is being said, speak to relevant staff members potentially involved in the incident, if that is um, what is being mentioned, 
consider whether anything else has been said by a staff member publicly in the press or um, on social media because you want to be consistent about it and investigate really whether there is any truth to, to what is being said. If there is, obviously then it's more of a PR issue. Um, you should consider whether or how to respond. Generally, a good idea is not to is to respond, but perhaps to take it offline and say, we're investigating this and contact us through this, th these means and we will take it further. If there is no truth to what is being said, or if there is any untruth to what is being said, obviously you're then in potentially defamatory territory. One preliminary point I would make here is that if you're in that situation, please take screenshots or, you know, speak to us and then we, we can have someone do that just to keep the evidence of the potentially defamatory material. I've had a, a specialist defamation barrister tell me once that um, she's had, unfortunately, many, many clients come to her wanting to issue proceedings for defamation in respect of online posts that had since been removed and of which they had no copies, which obviously is not the most helpful. But after you've done that, then um, I expect the primary question on, on people's minds is, well, how do you try and take them down. Um, something clients often wonder is, well, do the, you know, the social media platform, for example, or do, does the internet service provider have to take it down? The answer to that is generally without going into too much detail, but there are a number of defenses available to, to internet service providers who aren't the posters and who just innocently host these posts. One thing to do first is to consider whether actually um, whatever is being said otherwise breaches the social media platform standards. This will be things like obviously nudity, violent or racist content, anything that could go into um, harassment, or invitation to violence, or perhaps a breach of copyright. If somebody said something bad about your organization, but is also um, using a photograph, for example, for which there's copyright, all of those make it much easier to take down any posts. There's generally a little flag function or you can report the post to the organisation and they are then um, much happier to, 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 to listen to your request to take it down. Once you've done that, then really how to proceed largely depends on whether you know who the poster is. Yeah, so obviously social media and the internet more widely really do facilitate anonymity. So what if you don't know who posted? If you absolutely do not know who the author is, then your options really are to either try to find out who they are through um, a couple of legal routes or issue a claim against persons unknown for defamation. If you don't know who they are, you could as a starting point, follow a set process which involves sending a notice and takedown letter to the internet provider. So this process, it's quite a formulaic process. You send out a notice of complaint, which, you know, we can assist in, in, in drafting for you. There are certain numbers, certain bits of information that you have to put in. And if your notice is compliant, the operator of the website must, within 48 hours, either remove the post if they don't actually have contact details of, um, of, of the poster, or notify the poster that the post will be removed if they fail to provide their contact details within five days. 
So in theory, this sounds like a nice, easy and quick process um, that allows you to either find out who the person is or have the post taken down by the operator. In practice, operators often can't really be bothered following that process. And it's because what you need to put them on notice of is that the post is unlawful and not just defamatory, i.e. there are no defences such as truth. So again, operators often say, well, thank you very much for your notice, but actually we've got no way of knowing whether or not it's the truth. And so we don't have to follow that process. That does mean that it never works, especially if you've got, you know, evident, clear evidence that what is being said is untrue, then by all means, you know, that, that, that notice of complaint can very well work. Or um, if the operator doesn't comply with it, then they can actually lose their defence and be liable themselves. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to draft that notice. It's always worth doing. It could work. If it doesn't, often the next option, and that's something that, again, we often um, assist clients with, is you issue an application for what's called a Norwich Pharmacal Order, which is a type of disclosure um, application, really. It's where you've got no intention of issuing proceedings against the operator, and the application is to require them to disclose identifying information about the authors of the posts. So depending on who you're dealing with, website operators or social media platform actually often don't contest an application for that order. I've done one very recently against Facebook. There was an anonymous group that contained a lot of def defamatory um, statements about a client. We wrote to Facebook, well, with a notice to take down, they said, well, actually, um, we don't know that that's untrue. We then invited them um, to consent to our application for a Nor Norwich Pharmacal order, uh, requiring them to provide um, all the identifying information for the creator of that group. Facebook are based in Ireland. They generally instruct White and Case who say, yes, we, can, we consent to this order. We consent to the application being dealt with on paper, which means that you don't need to pay for a hearing. You lodge your application before the court, show that they've consented. Once it goes before a judge, um, generally it's approved, then serve Facebook abroad through the foreign process section of the court. And within maybe about six weeks from the initial letter to Facebook, um, you can receive um, all the identifying information about the poster or the author of the group. The recent case that I had actually had um, the other effect of spooking the anonymous author of the group into taking down the group. Facebook's policy is to inform the individual once they provide their, their identifying details. So having done that fairly quick and easy application before the court that was dealt with on paper, our client has the name of the person who's responsible, can consider whether to issue proceedings, and the group was actually taken down at that time. Finally, just the last um, option to mention, if you can't find out who the person is, you can always issue a claim against persons unknown. There was a reported case this year called Blackledge Against Persons Unknown, where a university lecturer had been named as a rapist and a bully on an anonymous blog. It was completely untrue. Professor Blackledge issued proceedings um, against persons unknown, got a judgment for £70,000 in damages and £45,000 of costs. 
obviously got a public judgment vindicating him and confirming that um, these statements were defamatory and untrue. And also an order under Section 13 of the Defamation Act for the website to be taken down by the operator. Obviously here, website was taken down, potentially an attempt to, you know, to, to, to rectify any damage to the reputation by, well, stop any further damage and um, potentially rectified by having this judgment. Obviously, the downside is that unless somehow the author is identified, then Professor Blackledge has spent, well, at the very least, £45,000 in legal costs that he's never going to get back. And he's got an order for damages that he can't really enforce. So if through one of those methods you do find out who the author is or if you know them already, um, what are your options then? Well, like with most litigation, you write to that person really and write a letter before action and articulate your claim. So in this case, it would be in defamation. You'd outline that you're entitled or your client, you believe you're entitled to um, all the remedies that, again, Matt talks through. You'll say you need to take this down, number one, and or publish an apology or correction, number two. Number three, provide an undertaking not to repeat the allegations. And number four, you need to pay me some damages or compensation. After that, well, wait, wait a letter of response. If you don't receive one, continue trying to contact them and then consider whether to issue proceedings. And if you do um, receive some engagement in pre-action correspondence, well, consider all of your options at, at every stage. See if you can negotiate some of the remedies. For example, um, they might agree to take it down. You can potentially negotiate an apology. I think unlikely that they might agree to pay you um, significant amounts of compensation, but generally, you see what you can get and then it, um, you consider whether you want to take it further. And finally, are there any downsides to pursuing a claim in defamation? Yes, like with all litigation, there are um, many potential downsides, but I do find that defamation cases in particular come with um, a fairly big set of health warnings. With defamation cases, by its very nature, sometimes taking action um, in order to try to protect your reputation can actually have perversely the opposite effect in that bringing an action in defamation can bring to prominence some allegations that perhaps weren't that prominent before. Obviously, if you bring proceedings and you win, then you get um, a positive judgment at the end, but the judgment might still be critical or of, 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 of certain aspects. And certainly all of this can, can, can bring everything to prominence. I think a lot of us followed, for example, um, Johnny Depp's claim against a newspaper for defamation for calling him a wife beater. Well, not only did he lose, but also very private details were brought out in public that may not have otherwise been. I'd say that it's very important always to consider how serious are the allegations, for example, um, how serious, how bad is the potential damage? How prominent are the allegations? Are they being reposted or are they at risk of going viral? And consider whether challenging them might actually lend credence to them um, or make them more prominent, where actually you might have been better off just not challenging. If, for example, it's one tweet to someone with eight followers, you might want to consider um, not necessarily taking action about that. 
And again, it's something to consider as you go through all of these options. I had one client recently, for example, somebody had gone on um, a defamatory Twitter brand, really, if I could call it that. It was a, a pinned thread. So it was at the very top of this individual's Twitter thread um, and at risk of causing our client damage. We wrote a letter before action that was responded to. One difficulty here was that the individual was in the USA, so that adds a fair number of um, hurdles. The, so the, the cost as well of potentially bringing defamation, um, a claim in defamation was quite high. But what happened in that case is that the individual actually unpinned the thread from her Twitter feed so that with every passing day, these tweets are falling further and further down her, her, her prolific Twitter feed. And again, that's something to bear in mind um, that that is, you know, somewhat of a victory. And we're considering um, where, where else to take it, if anywhere. Great. Well, thanks to both of you again for doing a podcast. If anyone would like more information on defamation, then you can contact either Matthew or Pauline through our website, which is devonshears.com. This is one of a series of podcasts published by Devonshears. No action should be taken on the matters covered in this podcast without taking specific legal advice.